with Starbucks Holiday Blend for Nespresso Virtuo, now exclusively at Target. There are even more ways to share the joy. Savor every smooth and festive sip all holiday season with friends and family at home to fill every indulgent day with cheer. Whether you're buying a new car, a used car, or refinancing your current car, FedChoice Federal Credit Union could help save you money. FedChoice makes buying a car so easy that you can do everything right from your smartphone or on a computer. Become a member today and you can take advantage of their great rates and financing options. Find out more at FedChoice.org. That's FedChoice.org. Membership open to federal employees including contractors and their families. FedChoice Federal Credit Union insured by NCUA. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you again. We thank you for joining us. Professor Michael Fauntroy is an associate professor of political science at Howard University. Uh, he is a well-known uh, political analyst uh, here in the nation's capital, and we're uh, fortunate enough to have him join us on the Hill podcast. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks for having we, me. We wanted yeah. to have you in because we're in a position here in Washington, D.C. right now where you know, the political conversation has been over, uh, to begin with, the president's tweet about these four Democratic mm-hmm. congresswomen, all women of color, and his position that they should go back. Uh, he wasn't talking about going back to the districts. He wasn't talking about going back to the states. Mm-hmm. The president, you know, eventually did say publicly that he was uh, saying that they should go back to countries where he believes they came from. Only one of them was not born in the United States. That would be uh, Congressman Omar was born uh, in Somalia. When you look at where we are right now, mm-hmm. um, are we better or worse off for this conversation at, at this moment? Because it's I, airing things right. out. I, I think I think we're worse off. And I say that with some measure of disappointment. Mm. So, as you know, in any organization, the tenor of the organization and the impact of the organization stems from what happens at the top. Mm-hmm. All right. And if you look at the United States of America as an organization, the President of the United States is at the top of that organization. And on important questions of race, racism in particular, the President has a unique responsibility and has to be able to execute that responsibility with a great deal of adroit sort of maneuvering because it's a tinderbox in America and quite frankly it's a tinderbox around the world. So we have a president who quite frankly is in the White House because of his ability to play on white grievance and also sort of put together this toxic mix, if you will, of um, xenophobia, racism, uh, misogyny, and so on. And so we don't have the leadership at the top to deal with this in a way that it needs to be dealt with. And not only do we not have the leadership, we have a president who has chosen to play this card time and time again because it serves his purposes. President Trump is the amalgamation of the last 50 years of our politics. He's a unique blend of George Wallace, Richard Nixon's Southern strategy, which was perfected by mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan and, and his Southern strategy. He, uh, he has a little David Duke in him 
And so you add it all up, and then you do the sort of televised piece with, that Jesse Helms was able to use to his effect uh, when he was running for re-election to the U.S. Senate back in 1990. You add it all up, and you have this really toxic brew that's tearing at the fabric of our country right now. Uh, we talked about this on the television program. I can remember standing on the National Mall the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated and looking around the, the, the massive crowd that was mm-hmm. there and feeling feeling that we had turned a corner in this country and feeling that um, we were getting to a point where maybe we were answering some of the racial questions that mm-hmm. had you know, dogged our country's history from, from the beginning because of our roots in slavery right. in, in this country. Were, were those of us who thought that or felt that wrong at the time or were we just right. naive to think mm-hmm. that electing an African-American president was going to go a long way towards solving these issues? I, I remember that morning incredibly well. You were working for Fox Because Fox I was on the yeah, roof yeah. of the museum with yeah. Allison Seymour as yeah. we talked through all of this stuff. And I, I always had some, some, some trepidation about the notion that we were you know, entering a yeah. post-racial environment I, I you know there's too much history to just sort of turn on 180 degrees based on the outcome of an election mm-hmm. uh, and more importantly President Obama was entering into n- new territory and he probably understood that you know he could do more damage to race relations if he got this wrong mm-hmm. right and I think that helped explain a lot of his caution on these on these points throughout his presidency so you know, I don't I don't want to say naivete as much as I want to say the optimism was slightly misplaced. You know, I remember the great journalist Daniel Shore yeah. writing and uh, giving his his commentary on NPR, talking about we're entering a post-racial society, and I just never saw it. I was open to the notion that it could happen, but I just never saw it. Well, I think you also you know if you're somebody like Daniel Shore, who was a white American, or you're talking about me, who's a white American, and right. I stand there on the National Mall, and I'm, you know, surrounded by literally, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of African American families mm-hmm. who are happy, and I can see the joy on their right. faces, and I'm, and I'm in that moment that you could lead yourself to believe that we had turned a corner, but you look at it now from right. the prism of 2019 of everything that's gone on it it, it, it does seem um, to wrap up an eight year period of mm-hmm. one presidency versus 200 years right. of institutionalized uh, racism right. it doesn't seem like a fair fight between the two of them no you know things don't, things take a long time to evolve and, and they take almost as long to unwind now if we had a president right now who was of a mind to help advance the conversation and move the country forward, then we might be on to something. But any momentum that was put forth by President Obama's election has been stymied at best or reversed at worst. Is Donald Trump what happens when you have the first African-American president? Well, 
Uh, he is what happens. Is he the snapback of the rubber band from a country who in some ways never thought, some people right. thought they'd never live to see an African-American president? I, I think that's possible, but I really do want to emphasize this one point. He is the president of the United States, but he lost the popular vote by three million. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the, the, the majority of the people who went out and voted in 2016 did not want him to be president. Now he's president. Electoral college says so. We get all that. But while, I, while my first instinct is to say, yes, he is what happens when all of this grievance comes together, he's actually what happens when the structure of our elections are shaped in a certain way. He's that. Now, he is the embodiment of the grievance that so many people in certain parts of the country have, but they are not a majority of the country. Let's get to that, because I think that speaks to, to something that has been left over from the era of slavery that still affects right now how presidents are elected. And I'm talking about the Electoral College. Yes. How is the Electoral College rooted in what existed in Mm -hmm. this country as far as the delineation of power and how uh, African Americans in this country Mm -hmm. were viewed as not only... uh, uh, Non-citizens, but as human property, beings, yeah. Yeah. but as people. So the Electoral College is a device that was created by the elite framers of the United States to make sure that decisions the elite didn't like could be overturned. Now, that could be for any number of reasons, uh, but it was sort of seen as a, you know, in case of emergency, mm-hmm. you know, break glass kind of thing. And for generations, we've rarely had to use it. Now, you and I, I think, are about the same age. I'm 52. Okay, I'm, fi- I'm 53, so okay. we're the same age. When I was in college and I was in political science classes, and I'm sure you've had this exercise as well, that was a rhetorical exercise. Right. We would do some philosophical hey, conversation. Did you what know, has happened? Did you know that you could lose the yeah. popular vote and still be president? Well, why is that? Well, you see, we had this electoral college. As we sit here right now, we have had now two presidencies that have been decided by the Electoral College where the president did not win Mm -hmm. the popular vote. What does that say to you, Professor Falk, about what we need to look at when it comes to the Electoral College? Well, not only that, and you're 100% right about that, but we haven't had a majority vote president by majority vote, I mean winning yeah. a majority well, of you're right. all voters. I was just talking about this the other day yeah. when Ross Perot passed away. Right, 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 uh, right, right, yeah. right. We haven't had a majority vote winner, I believe, since Reagan in 84. Mm-hmm. I, I got to go back and take a look at that. Maybe Bush in 88, but, but it's been forever. And so as long as we continue to have these quirky outcomes, I really do think it cuts at the legitimacy of our structure and our mm-hmm. system. And that's going to have even more of an impact as we move forward when our our population is migrating to certain parts of the country and the middle of America is losing population, but they're maintaining their electoral college votes and the places that already had pl- uh, plenty of voters, California, Florida, New York, Texas, to some extent, are pretty much locked in. And as a result, we are... 
we're in some very difficult space right now going forward because I just think that if we continue to elect questionably, the, if, if we can continue to elect people who have questionable legitimacy mm-hmm. in terms of winning the Electoral College but not the popular vote or winning, one, winning both of those and not a majority of the vote, then I think it cuts at the, the, the real ability of a president to bring the country together. This doesn't just end at the Electoral College, though. We have a gerrymandering situation right. in this country right now, which in effect allows representatives to pick their voters, not voters to pick their representatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Republican Governor Larry Hogan uh, has uh, been somebody who has said that he wants to work on gerrymandering reform, ending gerrymandering. Uh, obviously, President Obama, former Attorney General Holder, has said that they wanted to work uh, on gerrymandering reform. But this seems to be another one of those issues mm-hmm. where there's more talk about it than there was action. The Supreme Court recently ruled on this again, mm-hmm. and we seem to be locked into this pattern of these very crazy congressional districts right. being drawn. Is, is there a way to move the gerrymandering question forward that actually get some changes that we do have representatives uh, who reflect the people who they're supposed to be representing? Right. So this is a really important topic to me. I'm actually writing a book right now on black voter suppression, and this is a big piece of that. And this is where politics gets really raw, okay? when you look at what's going on in our national politics, that's a reflection of what is already taking place in our state politics. Mm-hmm. And many state legislatures uh, are captured by one party or the other, and they can do whatever they want. Yeah. Well, the 2020 elections are going to be critical, not just because it's a presidential election year, but also because state legislatures all across the country are going to be up for grabs. And the party that controls those state legislatures in most cases will control the the redistricting process that comes out of the 2020 census. Uh, Again, you you know, we talk about the 2020 census is always in the news with regard to the citizenship question. So uh, if, if we have state legislatures that are insisting upon doing the lines themselves, they're going to do the lines based on what's in their partisan interest. In every state legislature uh, in 2020 and in 2021, there are going to be members of those legislatures who are looking to carve out districts that are safe for the people who are currently serving them, but perhaps even carve out a district that they could run and and become a member of the United States House of Representatives. So uh, when you look at picking judges at the federal level, you look at cabinet secretaries, all of those jobs that require Senate confirmation, uh, you know, we have what is essentially a process that is purely about the acquisition and maintenance of political power. Mm-hmm. Now, some states have moved toward nonpartisan commissions, with, which have taken some of the partisanship out of that, and I mm-hmm. think that's a step, step in the right direction. I think um, as long as the partisans are driving this, we're going to continue to see it. Uh, the people that are a lot of the fights about what's going on are being driven by groups who are funding state legislative races 
the the real hay is being made in state legislative rates, races. We talk about money and politics at the national level. There's no question that that's a problem. But the real story is really what's going on in the states. And so I, I think this, I, I want everybody listening to us to know that they should be paying attention to what's going on in their own state legislative mm-hmm. races and follow where the money is going and where the money is coming from. All, po- all politics is local. Without that's question. One of the... Uh, uh, one of the oldest and truest things I've ever mm-hmm. I've ever heard. Um, at the same time, we're looking at what's going on in the states with, with gerrymandering here in the nation's capital. Right. They do not have statehood. Um, now there are different opinions over whether or not D.C. should be a state. Right. However, uh, an impossible to escape fact here is that we have seven hundred thousand American citizens. Mm-hmm tax-paying American citizens in the District of Columbia who do not get a vote in the United States Congress. Mm-hmm. They have Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton, uh, who is a, a very loud mm-hmm. uh, and powerful voice in the Congress, but she does not get to vote. Right. We do not have representatives in the United States Senate in, in this country. There's a lot of lip service paid every generation or so to D.C. state or to D.C. Mm-hmm. getting a vote. Um, but essentially, why do you think that here we are now, we're about to cross into 2020, and we have nearly a million people mm-hmm. in the continental United States who are American citizens who don't get a vote in Congress? Right. If, you, if you look at it that way, it's, it's not funny, but it's laughable. Yes, and that's actually the topic of my first book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hitting, I'm uh, hitting the bookshelf. There. Yes, thank you, yeah. thank you. Uh, so this is a long and drawn out story. I want to start first with Article One, Section Eight, Clause Seventeen of the Constitution, which gives Congress full authority over the nation's capital. That full authority theoretically could include admitting it as a state in in the union. Do you think it should be a state? Let me just step here. Uh, because yes. I've heard yeah. people say, oh, we'll, we'll create Douglas County, and then they get representation out of Maryland, right. or that they would um, somehow maybe take Arlington County back right. and then form a state out of that. Right. Uh, what, what do you think Yeah, what I, do you think it should look like? Well, I, I think I, I'm first and foremost a supportive state. Yeah. I could accept, alternatively, full voting representation in the House and Senate. I could live with that. I prefer statehood, but I can live with that. Uh, so the whole retrocession and Douglas County stuff and bring back Arlington, to me, yeah. that's a non-starter. It's just it's not workable. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And that assumes, for example, that the state of Maryland wants their district back, and I'm not sure that they would or should. By the way, retrocession they, they ceded the land, mm-hmm. you know, and so they can't take it back. And so there are a variety of well, Virginia pieces. did take back Arlington. Well. Long story short, you know, um, uh, Virginia petitioned, Mm -hmm. Arlington petitioned to go back, and and it happened. Nobody is petitioning to get. Nobody's asking. Nobody's asking. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I I I think we don't have it for a few reasons. One, Congress has always viewed the District of Columbia as, as something to take from, not something to give to. All right. So there's not a particular value. When you hear members of Congress, they always talk about the evils of Washington. Well, it's that old line that, you know, every four years, 
politicians say Washington doesn't work, and then they get elected and prove it. You know, they're, <laughs> they're, yeah. they're, they're, and then they say, send me back to Washington. Right, so like, yeah. right. And I, always, I always point out, you know, every time I see somebody on Facebook, you know, fire off something about, oh, Washington did this, right. or Washington did that, or Washington did the other thing, I am very quick to point out to them that the last time I checked, and I check every day, mm-hmm. Washington doesn't elect any voting member to Congress. Right. It's all these people out in the states who elect their yeah. representatives, so, send them to Washington, and then blame Washington for their problems. So that's, that is it in a nutshell. The problems we have in our national politics, in my view, stem from the fact that people around the country are sending people here who are not interested in actually trying to do the right thing. They're interested in, again, the acquisition and maintenance of power. So they 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 get there. They they come. They they are in their home states, right. saying all of these incendiary things, and they bring that here with them. And so there's no incentive for them to work together to get anything done. So, I I think that you you go back forty years ago, early to mid 1970s. I think that's probably the last time there was any serious attempt to try to work together in that immediate post-Watergate period up until the early 80s, once, once the firebrands came on board in the Republican Party and began to throw rocks at, at moderate Republicans and, and push them out, we lost any real opportunity to get anything done. Because, the Republicans, because the Republicans look at D.C. and they say, oh, you're a bunch of you know, Democrats in right. D.C., and if we give you this vote, you're just going to use it against us. Mm-hmm. And the question of the 700,000 people seems to evaporate in that debate. Like, they don't matter. We can go and fight for democracy in Iraq and and push democracy in certain places around the world, but in the capital of the world's foremost democracy, we can't practice it in full. And that's a hypocrisy that continues to this day and and will continue until a couple things happen. First... There has to be an energy in the city to, to push forward, and we, we, we get upset about a lot of things, but we don't take it to the streets about this. And then this, we're sort of hurt by our relative transients. Mm-hmm. People come here from other places. They're sort of more identified with their home states mm-hmm. than they do with the district. And, you know, that's a big issue that needs to be addressed as well. But. You mentioned people coming in here from right. other states, and it is in recent months sparked something that I have seen in this city, um, which does, I think, have the possibility of getting people out in the streets and has gotten out of the people into the streets, and that's the question over gentrification that has yes. gone on. Um, we had an instance where there was a, a cell phone store mm-hmm. that was known in its neighborhood for playing go-go music, which is... Uh, if if anybody who's listening does not know go-go music, <laughs> go learn yourself up about uh, go-go music yes, because um, yes. it should be bigger than yes. it is nationally. Right. But uh, it's just this incredible rhythmic um, uh, uh, music right. um, that the district is known for. Right. Played it over speakers in this yeah. um, uh, cell phone store for years. And then as has happened uh, in recent times, Apartment and luxury condos sure. wound up going around the neighborhood. Somebody complained, and they were told to shut off the music. And people felt that 
you take away go-go music. Right. You were taking away something that was intrinsic about the city's character, and it led people to start saying, oh, oh by the way, um, I can't afford right. any of these new places that are going up in my neighborhood. Right. It, it, was, it was a metaphor for a much larger issue. So let Where me do just, you see this going So right this, to me, <laughs> as somebody whose wedding reception 20 years ago, this coming September, uh, was, <laughs> thank you, yes. was, was a go-go. We had, yeah. we had a go-go band play our, our, our reception. Uh, this is really big for me. So I am a native of the city. I'm fourth generation in the city. My family's been in the city since the 1890s. Uh, my, my father grew up in a house two blocks from there. Uh, my wife and I moved into that house at some point after a significant restoration at a time that we didn't realize it at the time, but that the city was, that, that particular neighborhood was beginning to gentrify. And our 12-year-old twins are the fifth generation of our family to live in that wow. house. All right. And so this is a really big deal for me mm-hmm. because uh, as I, I see this and as somebody who is very much into history and particularly political history, I worry that the city is literally being whitewashed in this way and that uh, the many contributions of black people to this city are being moved, ignored, and otherwise sort of wiped off the, the map. So that worries me. Uh, on the gentrification piece, uh, it, it is an economic reality that many, many people around the country are doing what has already taken place in places like London and Paris mm-hmm. and other world cities, where all of the, the money is moving into the city. Uh, People don't want to spend an hour each way in the car to get to work. Yeah. All right, They'd rather be able to walk to work or walk to the subway and go to work. So there's a great competition for prime real estate. And it's essentially economic warfare that's mm-hmm. being committed. Uh, now, one of the side angles of that that I don't hear enough of is where the black gentrifies. Okay? So... Just this past week, there are reports come out that show that black home ownership is at its lowest rate since before the Kerner Commission report in 1968. All right. So President Trump talks about black unemployment rate being low. Well, wait a second. There's more to the story than that. Black home ownership is down. Black wealth is down. You know, where are you on that, Mr. President? So uh, the, the gentrification is uh, unfortunate in that it has clear racial dimensions and impacts, and black people tend to be on the losing end of that. And you drive around parts of the city now. Um, you know, when I was doing general assignment reporting mm-hmm. at night, um, maybe a decade ago, you know, I go to a lot of these neighborhoods in Southeast D.C. Mm-hmm. that I don't recognize anymore. Come on, man. Because they have either had neighborhoods torn down and right. replaced with new buildings um, or whole swaths of St. Elizabeth's campus right. uh, are under uh, multi-million dollar right. redevelopments. Is there, and, and when you go to these places, it is good to see construction sure. going on there. It is good to see these neighborhoods revitalized. Mm-hmm. But the concern is, is that 
the people who made their lives there and generationally, like you were talking about, your family, are they going to be able to still afford can, to can, live can in I, that place? Cannot benefit from so, the, the, the it, redevelopment. Is there a way to have both? Is there a way to have new buildings, to have yeah. lawns and, you know, clean streets and, mm. and new developments and new apartments? Yes. But yet still keep yes. our population intact? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. How do we this do that? is a failure of leadership at the city level. All right. No developer is going to no developer who's serious about trying to make money in this city because this city is a printing press in some ways right now, mm-hmm. more so than it's ever been before. No developer is going to decline an opportunity to do a serious large scale development if they're mandated to set aside more. More affordable okay. housing? More affordable housing and also larger scale apartments. Mm-hmm. See, most of this stuff that's been coming up recently is one and two bedroom apartments. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's by design not accessible to families. All right? So we need more three bedroom apartments. Mm-hmm. We need more rent subsidies. Mm-hmm. We need more rent control. Uh, there is enough... In th- this pie is big enough for everybody to get a piece, mm-hmm. all right? And I fault the elected leadership, the council and the mayor uh, for not doing enough to recognize that. The, 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 the horse is already out of the barn, okay? Mm-hmm. The money's in the city. There's no reason why steps cannot be taken to do that. And our city council, in my view, has failed miserably. There's some voices on the council that have, have spoken up repeatedly, but they're lone wolves in a much larger, vast, far more vast valley and just sort of being wiped out by developers. They love the ribbon cuttings, though. Yeah, well, they love the ribbon cutting, cuttings. There's no question about that. They don't like it so much when no. people start questioning no. whether or not no. they're getting no. forced out of their own no. city. Michael Fauntleroy is a professor of uh, political science at Howard University, uh, he is uh, an expert on uh, really our, our nation's course uh, in dealing with uh, racial discussions and politics uh, over our history. And uh, he was kind enough to uh, to go overtime with us <laughs> on uh, no Fox 5 uh, On the Hill podcast. Uh, Professor, we thank you so much. For oh, my pleasure, us. Fitz. It's always good. All right. We appreciate you as joining us as well. Uh, that'll do it for this time from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. This has been the On the Hill Podcast. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. We'll talk to you next time. Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde $7.99 y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carters. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos hasta las 3 p.m. en Nochebuena. JCPenney, celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters excluyendo los cupones. Detalles en la tienda jcp.com.